Thanks for downloading the Fantasy Animation Podcast, brought to you by fantasy-animation.org. If you enjoy these podcasts and would like to help us grow our audience, there are a few simple ways you can help. You can tell your friends about the show, either physically or online. Physically, well, hopefully you know how that works. Just tell people you know, get them to download the podcast, get them subscribing on various platforms. Online, you can like and retweet our posts on Twitter, share our posts on Facebook, and help us out in any other online platform that you work on. These seem like simple gestures, but they can be really, really influential in getting our word out, sharing our new content with our new listeners, and and basically helping us grow. You can also give us a rating on iTunes um, and a quick star review, um, as well as if you are an academic or someone with a bit of cash to burn, you can buy our book, Fantasy Animation Connections Between Media, Media and Genres, available on Amazon as well as other publishing platforms. Um, The book hovers around the 30 to 50 pound mark, so a little bit pricey for some. But if you do have the money out there or you're looking to buy new books for your library, um, it might make a great addition. Anything like that would help us grow the platform and continue doing what we love doing. But for now, enjoy the show. There are stories about what happened. Hello everybody and welcome to the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me Chris Holiday and me Alex Sargent. So today we are delving for the first time into the Star Wars universe, the Star Wars franchise, um, looking particularly at Star Wars Episode 7. Yes. Force Awakens. I never. I, I, I'm. I'm. I'm the ladder. This will become clear as we go through. I am very much uh, the Star Wars newbie in the in the room. Um, obviously, I'm interested in in the film in relation to visual effects and particularly interactivity um, and the application of visual effects within the film because it's it's. I think it's slightly different, perhaps, from the earlier Star Wars movies. Um, obviously, much more sophisticated, quite unquote sophisticated. Um, and yeah, I think Star Wars is an interesting place anyway to think about. Um, kind of, I guess the the, ro- the role of the computer, uh, CGI, and also kind of fascist imagery. I think the use of crowds and crowd systems is really interesting. Um, so that's moved my animation hat on, mm-hmm. Alex. Yes, with my fantasy hat on, I think um, this the new Star Wars film sort of uh, sets this this new wave of sort of. Uh, Disney and franchises in general eating themselves as if we've all run out of imagination. So I'm kind of interested in fantasies that repeat themselves, fantasies upon fantasies. Um, how can we make something imaginative when we're basically also corporate giants, all this kind of stuff, and the way that those tensions play out both in and outside the film. So I think there'll be plenty to talk about. Yes, uh, and of course it won't just be me and you talking about it. We are uh, delighted to be joined by uh, Dr. Beck Harrison, who is a lecturer in the Theatre, Film and Television Studies um, at the University of Glasgow. Um, Becca, thank you for joining us on the podcast. No, thank you for inviting me. Um, your research, now your research focuses, and you, I know you published on historical intersections between um, uh, cinema and, and other media and technologies. You've written a book, From Steam to Screen, about the cinema, railways and modernity, but it's your forthcoming work on Star Wars. So you've got two pieces uh, on Star Wars, a monograph on code, race and gender in the franchise and a book uh, on The Empire Strikes Back to coincide with the film's um, 40th anniversary. So I guess that's our in. Um, what was it? What is it about the Star Wars? Obviously, these are interesting movies for lots and lots of reasons. Um, why were you drawn as part of your research, perhaps, to the Star Wars franchise? I mean, it started off as like a much, much, much smaller project and interest. Um, and became a franchise in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. It, re- it really has. Um, 
I was actually, I mean, as a film historian, someone who works a lot in archives and thinks a lot about historiography and the process of keeping and collecting and recording, it was after watching Rogue One and I thought, I really want to write about this. And I just kind of finished writing and submitted the book on the sort of railways and cinema stuff. So I thought, oh, this will just be something really different that I can get into and think about some of this kind of similar questions, but in relation to a franchise or a, actually it was really just that one film at that point in time that, you know, is something that I've always loved, like inspired my yeah. interest in film when I was a kid. So yeah, it really started out as like, you know, I'm going to write about history and archiving in the Star Wars franchise. Yeah. And then it just got, <laughs> and then I, you know, and then I thought, okay, well I've watched Rogue One and it's obviously, you know, that film is all about going to an archive, finding information and like how that then transforms. So this is one. So actually, your interest is one of the offshoot movies in some ways, because because yeah, yeah. it's the the I'm all, you know the, the films themselves are what's the word? They have tentacles. They kind of reach in all directions and across media. Um, so that's really interesting that your entry point into the franchise in in many ways, as perhaps with the with the kind of uh, scholarly approach, is a. Uh, it's uh, one of the, I don't want to call them an offshoot film, but one of the non... Yeah, I guess they're called the spin-off films. The spin-off yeah. films, yeah. I mean, actually, when I was watching it, it was um, the character of Jin. I found I just found it really relatable because in the film, she is passed on information by a kind of senior male authority figure, and then she's sent to go and do research, basically. She's sent to like go to the archive and extract information and then publish it. Right. <laughs> and then at the end of the film, she's done that and she's done this huge amount of labour and then that kind of legacy gets erased because you never hear her film in any of the other, her name in any of the other films. Yeah. And, you know, she's kind of just dismissed and that's it. She's, she's dead and she's gone and she's done all of this work and it disappears. And I was like, wow, that's really like being a woman in academia. Yeah. <laughs> I, was like, yeah. I was like, oh, that's really like doing a PhD actually for yeah. a lot of women. Right. So, yeah, there was a kind of, I guess I had a sort of an affinity with the character in a certain way. Yeah, it was the, it was that interest, and then I thought, okay, well, the other Disney sequel films really, really play on objects that remain or have been archived or kept or fetishized in some way from the earlier films. So the, I guess, the most obvious one is Darth Vader's mask, yeah. which Kylo Ren kind of keeps on a plinth, and like kind of yeah, really, really fetishized object. Yeah. So I thought, okay, I'm going to have to now go back and watch all of the films to see how this fits within the franchise as a whole. And then when I started doing that, I actually started thinking, oh, okay, there's all this other stuff going on. This kind of, I guess, like an organising logic of code. Mm. And because I'm interested in tech and I'm interested in the switch between analogue and digital. And then it just, and then I was like, this is a book. This isn't an article anymore. Yeah. So... So, and actually, you were saying, actually, before we started, you were saying that there, obviously, that people have published work on... on um, Star Wars, and, and as I said, it's, it's probably an interdisciplinary topic insofar as you can attack it from multiple. I mean, you can attack it from the idea, the industrial logic of the franchise, as much as you can visual effects and fantasy. Um, but what is that? What are people writing about when they write about? Because it seems to open up questions. Star Wars seems to open up questions about um, gender. Jar Jar Binks. We can talk about race. Very famously, we can talk about race. Um, obviously, effects imagery. So, what, what what's out there, and where were you kind of placing yourself? Uh, I mean, there's lots. There's lots written about effect, yeah, um, and the kind of yeah digital visual culture, mm. um, and how presumably how foundational those films are to mapping a history of the three originals are great for their time. You have the three prequels, which are 
dubious in lots of ways. Um, I remember a note on the visual effects where on one of the Podray sequences, I think there's lots of practical effects, but it's cotton buds dipped in uh, different colours that are lined up. Um, and then these new ones, I mean, I thought the effects were... So I can totally see that, that, that the films themselves can be used yeah. to chart a kind of rise and fall of certain kinds of effects. Yeah, although interestingly, there's not actually a huge amount of historical work, mm. which is where, so I think where I'm sort of positioning myself is as someone who is doing a cultural history of Star Wars, who is interested in technology, but also in labour and the kind of gendered and race politics of the labour of the production of the films and how that translates into how they're distributed and exhibited mm. and how people are interacting with them and engaging with them as audiences. So I, it's kind of, it's quite big. Yeah, hence um, it's a book. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's big, but I think, yeah, most of the work that's been done on visual effects has really concentrated on digital era films. Right. So there's not really, I mean, there's tons and tons and tons of stuff from Lucasfilm about how the films are made. Yeah. I mean, I've got opinions on a lot of that work. Yeah. Um, so kind of this industry discourse facing outwards that tells the, yeah, the, the world how it's all... It's all like what's out there on that kind of stuff. It's all about like the minutiae of, you know, this is how we set up this particular scene and these are the ways in which we designed technology to record this. Or But there's nothing really putting it in any historical context. And, you know, a lot of the work that they've done is really innovative and really new. However, there's nothing to say, well, actually, these people over here were doing this work on this film and we borrowed from that. Or here are the bigger questions or issues that were facing the industry at that particular moment in time. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, the the original trilogy films tend to get a bit overlooked in scholarship, at least, thinking about effects. Yeah, there's tons of stuff on digital. There's, I mean, there's lots of... Interdis- I say interdisciplinary work. There's, you know, there's a book out there that's an edited collection on Star Wars and philosophy. Yeah. One that kind of looks at philosophy and religion. Um, but it seems like there's stuff in uh, these Star Wars films. There's stuff to say about character relationships and, um, you know, I guess interpretations of the Force and what all these things kind of, you know, and it influenced uh, Moonraker. So. Probably its lasting legacy is, <laughs> is the nineteen seventy nine feature film Moonraker. Yeah. So thanks everybody. That's that's off for another week. <laughs> you, you mentioned that that part of what you're interested in is sort of the relationship between special effects history and sort of social cultural history. Mm. So is part of what you're focusing on in your study of these movies sort of the practitioners um, and how they are sort of historicized or or, or spoken about? Because I wonder what you're saying there about um, Star Wars often doesn't get looked at in as in special effects history. Is that partly because George Lucas spent the 1990s explaining to everyone how bad he thought the special effects were in his own movie? So we sort of are tempted to <laughs> yeah. read backwards, you know, this idea of men sweeping away labour and all this yeah. kind of stuff. And also, I mean, it is amazing. I mean, that's it. I have issues with a lot of Star Wars scholarship. Um, a lot of the time it's written by people from outside of film studies, mm, okay. which I find really interesting. You'll get these whole edited collections where you look through and there's not like a single academic in there who is from a kind of film or visual culture background. And that's great and that's fine, but it's a prob- like a broader problem I have with that kind of interdisciplinary work. Is that, you know, I, I, I'm interdisciplinary. To do this project, I've read loads of stuff in software studies and about programming and I've gone out and done a course in coding to try to understand the logic of it. Yeah. My last project, I did lots of stuff in geography, architecture, urban studies. But often when people write about film, they think that because they can watch a film, they know how to write about it. Mm. 
And so you actually lose a lot of understanding of what it means to make a film and they don't understand the production or industrial context of the films themselves. Mm. And so you get this like really kind of flattened, you know, these films exist and here is some philosophy and then we apply the philosophy yes. to the films. Yes, sure, sure, sure. And there's a kind of, and it, it, it's frustrating, I think, if you're, if you're from a film background to not, it doesn't ever quite engage with it in a, mm. I think, particularly interesting way. Um, sorry, what was your question? No, I, that, like, I, I went I, off on no, a... No, that's I think you answered it. If yeah. you didn't, you answered something else that I found so ex- interesting that I've forgotten the question. But I, I guess bringing it back around to, to Force Awakens, what, what, where, where are you at your thoughts on that movie? It sounds like you're very interested in the sort of interweaving the text with the context in which it was made and how both mm. might speak to some sort of cultural, social... And it was before, before Rogue One, that's right, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. For, so it's Force Awakens... Rogue One, as in in terms of release date, because yeah. I know there was a couple of other offshoots. Solo, um, which may or may not have been before the last. Chris, Chris is, is is hesitant to try and point this out to all of us because he, as of two weeks ago, hadn't seen any of these movies. Yeah, so. as of one week ago, <laughs> right. I, okay. I vaguely remember the. I think I've seen the Phantom Menace, and I and I remember I remember having conversations with people about Attack of the Clones that it was a kind of oversaturated CG advert for toys, mm. effectively. Um, yeah. But I had, I knew of the Star Wars films, I will say, uh, uh, and now it, the titles of them make sense. Um, so I'm, yeah, I guess I, I, I'm interested in as, as pieces of kind of dramatic fiction. I and I thought was, they're great, like they're great. I, I'm, the temptation is to meet for me to go go towards the animation, but actually I think um, there's some interesting parallels between all of the movies. They seem to rehearse a very similar structure in lots of cases. Um, force counterforce, uh, which is I think interesting. Um, but yeah, as of as of not that long ago, I was I was a, a newbie. So this is I, I'm I'm hesitant to, to you know claim that one film came after the other, but I think I know. Well, there's one of the strengths of them, I think, is is this sort of they have this incredible ability to have a vivid mythic template. They are both incredibly generic and somehow <laughs> therefore not dull or or vacuous, right? Yeah, I was I rewatched The Force Awakens yesterday in order to come and talk about yeah. this to like refresh myself. So what does it do for you? Well, I was the... really struck by the fact you know there's a lot of there was a lot of criticism about the repetitive nature of it and the way in which it spoke to a new hope and it was just a remake and and it's I was watching and I was like no it really isn't just a remake. And to call it a remake erases all of the kind of positive changes that they've made in terms of diversifying the cast, yeah. um, which has huge political implications in terms of the the makeup of the rebellion or the resistance as it's become, um, and what that means in terms of the broader politics of the film in the real world. Yeah. But it's also just a really well-made film. Like it's a good kind of fact, like fantasy action sci-fi film. Like yeah. it's, it works as a film on its own. I yeah. Think. Yeah, well I and I, I was you know torn between rewatching the originals and then coming to this one fresh. Um I felt like felt like I've understood the world of of Star Wars a little bit and the character relationships because for a film that is very heavy on on its effects actually there's a lot of sequences with characters talking and and and, exp- and you know because of the family and the, the generational quality to it which I think is both within the film as a, as a thing that structures and supports the relationship between characters, but it's also obviously Star Wars: The Force Awakens is about a reimagine or a reemergence or a reimagining or a, um, a return to something. So what you mentioned about Darth Vader's and and the Archivist, I think there's something about inducting new spectators 
who might be fans and then building that into the characters. So some characters know of the legend and some don't and what you've heard is true. And so I quite like that reflexive quality to the film. Yeah, and I think it's really the, the it's like hugely nostalgic. Yeah. Obviously, but and there's like so many recalls to the earlier films, but that's really important and that reflects our own culture. And we are, mm. it does feel like we're at a, a moment where perhaps the future is, in, well, the, I mean, the future right now is incredibly uncertain, but, <laughs> but for a long time there's been, within a younger generation, there's been a, a kind of nostalgia for something that people haven't experienced or a kind of shared cultural memory of a time when they weren't alive. So like at the moment, the 90s are huge. Mm. You know, if you're yeah. between the age of like 15 and, and 21, the 90s are like so cool and I'm like this is great because I feel slightly cool again yeah I can dig up my Walkman at last yeah. and start when, when, yeah. for what I never actually felt cool being in the 90s no, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but now yeah absolutely yeah. but that is still touching it's finally, it's finally paid off yeah <laughs> okay so the films are coming out of because uh, obviously it's, it's been how, how long 13 10 years 13 years something like that between the, the prequels and then this new mm. This new, so it, uh, time has passed. So there's a nostalgia within a, a franchise that has itself been split up into kind of three distinct periods, really three clusters of, of movies. Well, Alex, you're looking but, at. But the, I think those thirteen years are a little bit deceptive, and actually, I, I feel these movies are almost co- attempting to say to one ge- correct a problem from one generation, whether <laughs> rightly or wrongly. But there's certainly a widespread perception that the 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 uh, prequels ruined Star Wars. It's so fascinating yeah. because for the the kind of undergrad generation now who are obsessing on with around the 90s, they really like the prequels. Yeah, and they've had a they've been what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know, they've been kind of re reimagined almost. Yeah. And all of the students that want to write dissertations on Star Wars that I end up supervising every year they, they just want to write about the prequels all the time yeah so it's really, really interesting. interesting that they've you know the if anyone is trying to kind of correct the prequels that's for an older generation of viewer that's not for a younger generation who would have seen those films when they were kids mm. they were probably the first star wars films they ever saw i wonder whether it's been you know they are well, i don't know whether why they're writing these projects um whether it's coming out of the, the these new movies that are themselves inviting spectators to go back to the films that the Star Wars films that were around when they were children um, because uh, yeah there are lots of criticisms out there in in the world pop, both popular and critical about the the role of the um, the the prequels I believe that the Phantom Menace didn't do too badly in terms of box office and very well in terms yeah, of so it's not like it's, it's, it's yeah I mean they all did so it's so there's you know success and categories of you know the popular are interesting in that mm-hmm. sense um but it seems like yeah, that there's a certain generational aspect which I do, which I that is one of the strengths I think of the the Force Awakens that there are parallels as you say, and and but it's not just a straight remake. It tries to sort of you know nuance that process with a recognition of uh, yeah, it's both speak you know it's it's talking to two sets of films, recalling the you know the originals whilst at the same time speaking in some way not explicitly maybe so this is what i meant when i said in the introduction that sort of it's it's a fantasy upon a fantasy upon a fantasy and that even the originals too there's there's nothing desperately original about the plot of um a new hope you know it's essentially a quite a mythic well it's you know very famously it's joseph campbell's sort of call of the hero yeah um, literally put into a script i think lucas says that so much and now has 
convinced all screenwriters forever that that's how you have to write a story or, or die in sort of um, career suicide, right? But it, that's what it is. It's a mythic structure and the nuance, the, the, the pleasure is in applying it to new ideas and new zones. Yeah. I mean, there's a certain kind of, like the repetitiveness of it, which is nostalgic. And I suppose a lot of people have just criticised and said it's just really lazy filmmaking. But it's that kind of Russian doll mm. effect of... You know, it keeps being itself over and over and over again in slightly different forms. One of the things that I've been trying to sort of think about and grapple with, although I've not, it's not that developed yet. Uh, so for the book that I'm doing on code, I've been thinking about what it means, if we're talking about digital film, what it means to apply theory and concepts from software studies mm -hmm. to film and to, to kind of create a sort of new filmic language. Because when we talk about film, we're always still talking about a language that was developed to talk about analogue film. Yeah. And to think about, you know, how, how might that change or transform? So one of the, and I'm probably going to explain this wrong, so I really hope. It's no like, well, like, we'll just, we'll re-edit it and it will yeah, sound perfect. Wonderful, um, wonderful. But you know, it's, that, it's always that fear where you're like, oh, it's like branching into interdisciplinary <laughs> territory and am I going to get this quite right? So there's a, a concept called recursion in programming which the best, I can't remember, is it Matthew Fuller maybe, Something if you want to, someone wants to look up the reference. Um, I am on it. Who says that, so to explain recursion, he says it's like having a dictionary in which every single word in the dictionary creates like the dictionary. It, does that make sense? So like you've got, in describing what each of the words means, you use every word within it. Right. So does does that kind of yes? In, in the in that there's no every word that is explaining another word also needs explaining. So there's there's no primary. There's only sort of application. Yeah. So it's almost, I guess almost a bit like a fractal. So yeah. every oh, yeah. every component part or every constituent part is the the whole thing itself. Sure. Contained yeah. within that constituent part. Yeah. And I find that like a really interesting and useful way to think about the Star Wars franchise, because everything within one film like every constituent part of the franchise is the whole thing contained within itself so all these kind of recalls and like ways of like looping back and forward and you know the force awakens contains callbacks to the original trilogy and the prequels which because of the strange linearity or non-linearity of the franchise where the middle films come first and then mm. the first films come in the middle and then so it creates this kind of looping effect where you're constantly going around in circles and everything is contained everything within the films yeah everything within every individual film is the whole thing contained within itself again but that's well that's fascinating because it's 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 taking the idea of the hollywood's contemporary franchise mentality and obviously we're in an era where i mean like i don't, I wonder how influenced The Force Awakens is by, you know, the Marvel, the interlocking. I mean, it's already done it to some extent by establishing the prequels, but there's something, you know, there's, it'd be interesting to chart a kind of post and pre-Marvel in terms of the way that franchises uh, kind of come together. Um, and many writers have written about this sort of transmedia convergence, multi-platform, multi-part, but to draw from a language of new media, ostensibly, or a language of code, to then apply it to the structures of a series that is so indebted, of course, to digital technology as objects, mm -hmm. but also to explain something of its 
narrative makeup is because yeah, so I'm I, on the basis of what you said so recursion and it's already used about kind of the looping these sorts of mythical symbols of the snake nibbling away at its own tail yeah. and you end up which is kind of a mythic way of looking at yeah which is fascinating which is really fascinating it's almost a kind of feedback loop as well yeah. where it's just constantly cycling back on itself I can remember I haven't thought about this for a good couple of decades now but while you were speaking there uh, Becca I remember when I watched the original um, trilogies as a kid I remember thinking there are basically three things I like in Star Wars movies which is uh, laser battles yeah. spaceship battles and um, I've forgotten the word for them Zoom, zoom, lightsabers, lightsaber battles, and, and the first one, that noise again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the first one is a bit, you know, was well, it's laser battle, laser battle, laser battle, uh, light, uh, lightsaber battle, spaceship battle. The second one is more, you know, I could, that's how I would categorize the movies. And I can remember, like, you know, okay, I, I want, I want a bit of space battle, so I watched the first half an hour of this one, then this one, then this one. So what you're speaking about is a language, I guess. Not too dissimilar what you're saying, that you're, it's, it's structured around recurring beats. It's not structured around narrative moments or anything like that. Which I guess is action, but it's also... There is something embedded within this template, isn't it? That the, yeah. the repetitiveness is... I mean, the, the, even Return of, the, um, Return of the Jedi is the same movie, essentially, as the first one and all this kind of stuff, which is the same as Flash Gordon, which is the same as uh, Mythic Structures. Yeah, but it's interesting, because even in the titles, I've not really thought about this, but these sorts of force and counterforce, you have... The films themselves are about directional movement, or the or they're about uh, rise. So you have revenge, which implies yeah. a sort of ret return. Revenge uh, awakens. Uh, there's a sort of like attack. There's there seems to be a kind of back and forth between. I don't know. I'm making lots of movements. I wish I'd noticed this myself, and I did not. I can't. You know, it was on Twitter, I think. Mm. But someone noticed that the title of each of the um, Disney sequel films is articulated by a character in a line of dialogue in the film before it. So in The Force Awakens, Snoke says, um, he says the line, The Last Jedi. Right. Which of course becomes the second film. And someone in The Last Jedi, I can't remember which character it is, says something about the rise of Skywalker. So even yeah. in that sense, there. Well, there's something interesting. I mean, I, I, it, but it's also what I find interesting about this is that it does update a lot of scholarship on transmedia and convergence that seems to have you know we've done that now and that's great and now what we can talk about and and uh, work around kind of anticipatory media that is gesturing it's always forward facing as well as it being nostalgic and and um it's kind of a, a forward-looking archivist that you are looking back to look forward and it's that constant sort of feedback loop exactly as you said which I yeah and which actually the the area, the two areas where you get lots of Star Wars scholarship of people in more kind of cultural and media studies is on um, convergence and transmedia yeah. scholarship and yeah. um, fandom. I don't mm. know being the other one, but but yeah, those are the areas where people tend to coalesce, and there's just lots, lot, lots less. There's just less written yeah. about um, the aesthetics of the films or what the relationships are between the aesthetics. And transmedia storytelling and yeah. the technology. And it's just trying to join all of those things up. Yeah. Well, I, I think it was on the basis of having watched the originals, now that I have seen the originals, and the most interesting thing about me has disappeared, because I now <laughs> have seen them, um, that my first set of notes on The Force Awakens are, are almost constructing two... 
you know, you have the First Order and the Empire, you have Leia leading a resistance, and I've put Echoes of the New Hope question mark. But then I've also got BBA and R2D2, a Poe Jammer, and I've put Luke question mark, Han question mark, because of the jacket and the, um, and then Max von Sydow's character, Law Santeca, who is the Obi-Wan Kenobi. There's a lot of stuff with hoods. I like hoods. Mm. Um, but there's, what I found immediately interesting was that the film, The Force Awakens, focused on the agency and subjectivity at the start of a stormtrooper. So that was the first, like, okay, so we're doing it the other way now. Okay, I understand that as a... Um, but you mentioned earlier the diversification. Yeah. So how does that film sit... Uh, and, I, and I don't know the answer to this, but my feeling was that the, the Star Wars and, and actually science fiction, there are certain male-oriented genres, the Western perhaps... Um, I don't know whether science fiction is traditionally a more male-oriented genre, or is this part of the diversification or the focus on Ray? I mean, I, what does the film do in in under that kind of diversification? I mean, I think just having you know casting a black man mm. in a major role in the film is yeah. really, really, really important, and that he. I mean, we don't get much of it. I mean, we don't really get much of any of their backstories, so it's not like he's kind of singled out. But but Finn's character, John Boyega like totally revolutionary in Star Wars terms yeah to have a character that was in, there throughout the whole film doesn't die at the end <laughs> isn't just a kind of repeat of the Lando Calrissian character and is not I mean there's like there's I mean this is kind of really complicated and there's issues around this but like isn't defined by his race yeah either and gets to be a hero in on the action I mean that's really important in terms of representation. Absolutely, and he's so so he's not marked because of his kind of blackness. It's not it's not yeah. marked in it's not marked in ways that it could be marked in less careful and considered terms. Perhaps. Yeah, I mean I still think we have to be really critical of it because yeah. I mean it's you know he's a there's a kind of race and class issue there because I mean I think we're meant to believe his character as a stormtrooper on. The what what's it called? Is it the Star Killer base? I think there's like, I sort of like struggle with saying that because it just sounds so terrible. Yeah, but, um, yeah I think you're right. I think it is called that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, am I am I imagining this? It, this it, it could no, be, called be called that. Should be called that. Yeah. yeah. I'm saying those words out loud. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think he's meant to kind of work in the sort of sanitation department. I think we're meant to believe. I th think so that they can make a joke later on about putting Captain Phasma in the garbage chute. Yeah, yeah. And the trash compactor, and he's like meant to know where that is, and it feels like that's what maybe why they decided that's what his character did. But having having a black character in that space who like does that kind of work of like clearing up the mess mm. and clearing up dirt of you know a kind of white the white overlords in that space. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's got a racial element to it, yeah. and you can't ignore it. But the film doesn't really do anything with that and I don't think the film is particularly it's not asking us to be critical of it you can just not notice it yeah I, what I liked about it was obviously this focus on the or the, the stormtroopers perspective if you like that it's obviously a double it's a double reveal because we see a stormtrooper in the flesh kind of thing and that flesh is as you say it's it's sort of revolutionary in, in lots of ways but also that it the film it seems to be interested at the start in Poe Dameron and then just isn't interested in him so when they're fighting together, the film sort of playfully sets up that he is going to the, be the embodiment of either the Luke character or the Han Solo character. He is Harrison Ford, you know, ostensibly. But then... But so like, like a, again, a you know, man of colour, Latino man, yeah. doing 
doing more work again to diversify it and not just yeah. having a kind of typical you know they could have easily cast I can't remember the, next, the character's name the guy who ended up playing Han Solo in the Solo film Oh yes, 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 yes. Um, yes. You know yeah. they could. Have, you know, there's a way in which you can. Hail Caesar, man. Yes. Um, uh, er- Alden, I mean, that's not his Alden, name. No. Alden, Alden Ehrenreich. Ehrenreich. That's it. Yes. Yeah. Um, Didn't um, definitely Google that. Carry on. <laughs> so you know you can imagine a way in which, a sort yeah. of situation in which they would have just cast that character mm. as the kind of flyboy Han Solo character. Yeah. Or um, Chris Pratt or someone like oh, that. Oh god, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that could have yeah. that could have so easily mm-hmm. happened. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely a move towards more diverse, mm. inclusive representation. It's now that time of the show where we pause for a second and talk about blog posts. What are blog posts? Blog posts are available on fantasy-animation.org every week. A special guest contributor writes one, and it can be about all kinds of things um, relating to the worlds of fantasy and animation. If you're an academic. Maybe a screenwriter, maybe a practitioner or an artist, a curator, member of a fan organisation, animation director, or anyone with a vested interest in where fantasy and animation might meet, we would love to hear from you. If you're trying to promote some of your work and would like to write a creative reflection on how you were inspired to produce your work of animation, we're here to help. If you're an early career researcher who's looked like to, who would like to get some publication experience and some editorial advice on their work, we're here to help. Blog posts can take many forms. They can be a short editorial or opinion piece, maybe a sequence analysis where it's your chance to get obsessive, pick a short clip from any example of fantasy and animation and analyse the relationship between the two media, mediums and genres. If you've read a book, seen a television programme or film, we'd love to hear from you. We want reviews. If you've been to an event, a conference or even a film festival and planning to take part in any of the above, do get in touch. Fantasy-animation.org But for now, let's get back to the show. It seems to me that you have obviously the film set or sets up for, for me set up Poe and then then the baton is passed to, to Finn and then Finn becomes the sort of motivate and then it very quickly it then just becomes about Ray yeah um, and that I really liked that sort of I was trying to figure out who the main character is and then realised that it doesn't matter who the main character yeah, is but really then Ray did cast. yeah which I really liked and I think that's that you're right to point at the diversification now the I mean I don't I'm thinking the the role of women it, I'm I'm watching the film and I know that this is a, a fantastic movie in terms of Ray as a character and I thought her character is is brilliant um, and so but it seems like is that's part of the film's. Uh, repositioning or trying to do something with the franchise that was different even to the original films but also I remember criticisms about the prequel films where Natalie Portman's character is not really doing anything and it's just and the dialogue is very well you know more about this than I do but the dialogue that she she um, speaks isn't particularly exciting or right so let's talk about that because it seems like that film was also Mm. using Ray to correct that potentially yeah I mean it's it's like the prequels are the odd one out in this situation <laughs> because Leia in the original trilogy is a great character yeah. and she is often active and you know driving driving the narrative. She's in a position of power. Okay, there's like loads of stuff you can critique around class and privilege and all of those things that we don't tend to talk, talk about so much. But the, the prequels are just diabolical in terms <laughs> of the representation of women. Um, yeah, they came out when I when I cut the films to work out the amount oh, yes, of screen yes. time that the the women get in those films, and I was really generous and I just cut the men out. So it's just women being actively on screen, 
I mean, you have to make subjective decisions about how you how you characterize this, but women being active in the frame or kind of owning the space or having dialogue. Mm. And then I would keep them and if there were neutral shots where there was no particular, you know, there's like a a battle going on in space and you can't see the characters who are in the ships, then I would keep that. Um, the prequels came out like the worst. Yeah. I think well, A New Hope was the worst one. I think that's like fifteen percent of screen time. All of that is Leia because there are no other women in that film. But then the prequels are all of them the next worst in terms of women's representation. Yeah. And even within that, it's really weird when you're cutting the films and you're doing really it's really close textual analysis. And started to notice these weird patterns in Padme's speech and dialogue and she's always asking questions so she never really gets to actually vocalize opinions <laughs> or to say anything that makes the plot develop she's always asking information of male characters so that the audience finds things out yeah but it... only ever finds out key plot elements moments through male voices yeah yeah so you can actually there's yeah. i've done like a kind of little mm. padme showreel where it's about two minutes where i found all of the all of the questions that she asks and it makes up most of the dialogue that she speaks yeah so this is in no way Force Awakens is not like that uh, no fortunately not <laughs> um, and we aren't substituting Daisy Ridley at any point with Kira Knightley which is you know because women are interchangeable yeah, apparently all interchangeable um, okay so what did, so this film clearly does something different then in, in, in yeah, lots and lots of I ways think, I mean Ray's a, a kind of an interesting character I think one of the well, actually, maybe this means we get to talk about Dark Ray as well, which I'm like quite excited about, which was the um, yes. Ray appearing as a kind of Sith. Yes, in the dark, n- dark side character. Yeah, in yeah, in that I think what what was called a sizzle reel, rather than a trailer. Right. Um, <laughs> I can't keep up with these yeah. news. Thank God that it, term now exists yeah. in the world. <laughs> Tra- trailer was getting old. Yeah. You know, yeah, where um, we were. Okay. Some some new jargon for okay. us. Okay. Um, so but yeah, she's not really, right? certainly in The Force Awakens, she's absolutely not sexualised. I think there's a there's definitely an undertone of um, chemistry, I suppose, between her and, and Kylo Ren. Mm. And there's like a kind of big um, fandom kind of, you know, shipping those, the, what do they call them? Raylo. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Portmanteau name. Yeah. Um, so yes, yeah, so there's a lot of Raylo shipping that goes on. But I think you're even though you kind of meant to understand that Kylo Ren might have some sort of attraction to her, you're never asked to participate in that. And it almost feels kind of, um, what's the word? There's something a little bit sinister about Mm. it and you feel like maybe you shouldn't, you know, he's wrong for having those feelings about her. So she's not, we're not kind of seeing her as like a, she's not a femme fatale, she's not, you know, an objective... We're not objectifying her in any way, which I think is mm. really important. There were three bits of dialogue that she says, well, two two bits that I, I noted down, but she says it multiple times, but when, I think it's a, relatively early on, I think, when the metaphorical narrative baton is being passed from John Boyega's character, Finn, to, to Daisy Ridley's character. Um, I know how to run without holding your hand. Stop taking my hand. And then she takes his hand. Yeah. Uh, so the, actually the baton thing works quite nicely. But there is something... That was that seemed to be 
uh, an explicit moment of, you know, Ray is being coded as different and this is why it matters yeah. kind of thing rather than anything and else. And I think there's also, you know, Disney are not stupid and they are trying to speak to a really wide audience mm. and they know their audience really well. And I, you know, when I went to see the film in the cinema... And I, I mean, I did it and loads of other women in the room did it. And there was, you know, and she said, like, you stop holding my hand. And everyone was like, yes, like, this is a moment for us where there's this not, I mean, it's probably one of the most explicit, explicitly, I wouldn't go so far as to call it feminist, but it gestures towards feminist politics. Mm. Having a woman say, like, I don't need your help. Um, I mean, we could, again, it's never that simple. And I feel like there's a there's something quite complex about that in relation to a white woman saying that to a black man. Mm-hmm. If it was a, you know, a kind of white Han Solo character, would we have had that same exchange? It's much easier for them to set that up when it's a man of colour and a white woman, I think. It's kind of easier to have that like rejection of, of help or assistance. Yeah. Because of the power dynamic is already so complicated. Sure. But, yeah, but it was still, you know, it was still, in, it's, in and of itself, it was yeah. still like an important moment. Yeah, and I think... I'm, in terms of the sort of uh, gender and race politics of the movie, I think there's something both quieter and more um, or, or less tense about the way it's trying to sort of um, use a franchise and play with sort of certain ingrained templates and also try to do something a little bit more progressive in terms of its inclusivity compared to, say, something like Wonder Woman or, or these kind of showy Marvel movies mm. we've got, which very much, try, you know, always try to, you know, sell inclusivity as some sort of commodity that um, that the movies kind of, you know, look, this is going to be the inclusive movie. Now you've had the, you've had the Spider-Man movie, now we're having the inclusive movie, you know, kind mm. of thing. And I think perhaps the strength of the movie is because so much of it is invested in these sort of fractal templates moving round and round again in a, in a in a spiral but it's almost like it's like when you get um there's an essay by Umberto Eco on bond move on bond books actually and how um uh, a, a bond book or a bond film can, it doesn't really matter both work in the same way and that you know you learn the rules of the of the uh, it's like a game of chess. chess you learn what each player thing does but that doesn't mean each game is boring because each game is fundamentally different because the pleasure is how do you use the pieces today? Well, this film is like that, right? How are the pieces being used? And Ray is okay. Ray is Skywalker. Ray is the the person on the desert planet who has got a mysterious past that's going to become the the person that brings balance to the Force. And once you see her like that, gender becomes both really important, but also not very important to the narrative because she's a she's she's this archetype. She embodies mm. this archetype. So it's both powerful, but she embodies the archetype, and also it you can kind of. It doesn't have to be screamingly about gender all the time. It can be about the Star Wars yeah. legacy and mythos. Well, actually, I think those three characters in The Force Awakens, I, th- I don't think they're quite so easily mapped onto the no. original trilogy characters as you first think, because... So this is Poe... Poe, Finn and Rey. Poe, Finn and Rey, yeah. Because Rey, the first moment we see her is when she's wearing that... I mean, so she's actually really codified as Leia in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. certainly in terms of her appearance. Mm. Um, there is a Leia is like the archetypal woman in Star Wars, and I've been sort of doing quite a lot of thinking about this because she's almost like all the other characters just become analogues of Leia's, all of the other women. So Ray has the exact same look about her. She's a white woman. She's got dark hair. Her hair is, you know, pulled back up off of her face. It's worn in kind of strange, slightly alien-looking styles. She's got a kind of white 
tunic on. It, you know, she, there's a lot of parallels between her and the later character. Mm-hmm. Also, the the first moment we see her and she's got that kind of mask on with the goggles, and it looks very similar to Leia in um, Return of the Jedi when she's at Jabba the Hutt's palace mm-hmm. and she kind of you know she's kind of disguised. And then there's a moment where she takes that mask off and. Actually, interestingly, I've not thought about this, but she that's she takes the mask off and it's the kind of the big reveal that it's Leia at a moment when Han is kind of incapacitated and she's in this position of power and rescuing him. Yeah. So it's a moment of like, you know, empowerment in that film. Sure. That would then that's the kind of moment that we meet Ray when she kind of there's not that much that's gendered about her bodily appearance. Mm. And then we kind of discover that when she takes the mask off. But she's also kind of slightly positioned almost as like an analogue of Han Solo as well because she flies the Millennium Falcon mm. and she's a great pilot and she's really kind of technically minded. You know, she's almost at the point of becoming his apprentice. I was going to say, there's some really yeah. nice scenes with the, with Harrison yeah, yeah. Ford and and, um, and so I think that's where the generational thing comes in because obviously she is also a scavenger and so there is something about the, the archive that's in the film under the dust and the dirt and... and the worth of things and and I didn't notice this but um, with the Millennium Falcon lying dormant in the background this thing hasn't flown for you and then um, Simon Pegg's character the the Uncle um, Platt who like Platt Platt the the guy who's the the trade the sort of the tradesman yeah, trade. and there's something about you know worth and 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 how valuable BBA is because of what and then also which is nicely counterpointed to R2D2 just lying there later in the film under a under a sheet. Yeah. So there's something about the yeah, characters that are allowed to lie fallow and, and others that are I don't know, there's something quite interesting about her role as a scavenger and, and so actually my question was actually going to be, is she like the I wonder whether is she like the new Star Wars spectator who's heard of the heard of the things yeah. but doesn't quite know and so and obviously when she meets Han Solo and he says it's all true. So is, is that what role she's playing? To sort yeah, of I sort of skip between the various... Yeah. Her and her and Finn are doing this kind of... It's a really self-referential moment in the film, I think, when they they have that excitement about meeting Han yeah. Solo. And he yeah. says, the famous resistance pilot. Yeah, yeah. Or, uh, the famous rebellious... Re- rebellion pilot? Anyway, whatever. Um, and she says, oh no, the famous smuggler. Yeah. And they're both kind of coming at it from different points of view but they've both got this shared excitement and realising they're in the Millennium Falcon and they're allowing you to live that excitement through them and to really feel that nostalgia yeah. and you know you, I think you it's a kind of quite embodied moment as a spectator where they're both demonstrating the same kind of joy that you're experiencing from sitting in your seat thinking they're in the Millennium Falcon again yeah. after not having seen any films in this franchise for over a decade. Yeah. I think the one archetypal role that she does fulfil that is quite exclusive within the mythology though is the sort of the, the, the chosen one Jedi figure mm. for want of a better term because that is very much sort of coded as she's the only one that can have access to that, right? In the same way that Luke's the only one that can have access to that in the sort of original um, trilogy. Leia supposedly has the same gifts, but you never see her do, do anything with it. Yeah. And in fact, the only time you see her do much with it was a sort of fa- uh, notorious fan. How dare they moment in the in the Last Jedi, right? But that's yeah. perhaps for another podcast another day. But yeah. Um, but yeah. So but but that that but certainly by the end of the movie in that final act, she is you know Finn tries to fight with a lightsaber, but but doesn't do a particularly great job of it. She is codified as sort of 
So I don't know. There is a certain level where she fits into that box. Yeah. But as a woman, there is something in, you know, there is it's playing with gender as well while it does that. Yeah, I mean, there was re-watching The Empire Strikes Back recently and there's that line that Yoda says to um, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know, Luke's just flown off from Dagobah to go back to try to save them on Bespin. And I think Obi-Wan says something, you know, he's our, he's our last hope. And then Yoda says, no, there will be another. So, of course, there's always this, like, retconning in Star Wars where mm. things change, like, the significance of the line changes or it starts to mean something sure. different because of the new things that they've done with the new films. So that, you know, you find out that Leia is force-powerful? Force I don't know what the yeah. term you know, she, when she pick, is. Is that when it. she picks up... I'm thinking about the moment where she picks up the, the, the lightsaber that's lying dormant and has all of those flashbacks, but is that before... I'm trying to think of where where her her relationship with it, the Force comes. In to the, the original force. trilogy, she talks to Luke, doesn't she? Sort of yeah, telepathically kind of telepathic. at the end of Empire Strikes Back. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if she does anything in Return of the Jedi particularly forcey. No, know, I don't um, think so. But I think we're meant to think that she you know, could. We, we, but we hear, you know, we find out there will be another. And I think in the context of those films, as they were up till the Force Awakens came out, mm. you were probably going to think, well, that was Leia. Yeah. Whereas, so. In this case, Ray has taken that over because she's become the chosen one. With force. Who, with, with who is, force you know, powerful. Yeah, very force powerful. And, and then if you retcon that back, there is something interesting in... I, I remember all that, There's something interesting in... You've had now... This is the seventh movie of these. We've had... If you put them in chronological order, we've had three movies where someone where a, white, a man has been told he's the chosen one and completely fucked it up. Then you have three more movies where where... We think it's all been fine, but actually now we're back in seven, and let Luke's done something to fuck it up, and now we have a final person who who supposedly will end all this because this is only be nine movies, unless we'll probably be back here in twenty years uh, talking about episode thirteen yeah. that the Force continues forever. <laughs> um, um, but there is something interesting about that, and sort of the, the the power dynamics of maybe maybe we'll let a woman have a go this time and see what she can do with it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, there was that. I mean, at the end of the Last Jedi, there was that really. I can sort of see why I wasn't the last shot, but it really upset me the way that they did this. They had that really beautiful shot where you're kind of looking in through the window of the ship, and you have Leia and Ray and Rose, and then you've got you know Poe and Finn as men of color, and you. But it was like this really kind of female centric, kind of you know new consolidation of power, and that was where the resistance was. And I can't remember where I was going with that, but I did have a wider point. Um, yeah, no, maybe that was the well, point. That, you like was, that clip, but then it, but it actually ends with the, it, that, with the little was, boy like that. Yeah, no, souls. that was the thing that really upset yeah. me, was that, they, 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 you know, you've got this new new kind of framework of kind of feminine or kind of female-oriented power, and, like, things are going to maybe change for the better, potentially, in the, well, I mean, obviously it's going to have a happy ending, but then it cuts to, to Broom Boy, as he became known. <laughs> Um, I need that, to see this movie. I'm, uh, I'm excited. Oh, it's a really strange. It's very strange. I mean, I think it's because you know the film actually, for all that there was lots of talk of it, you know, being the Star Wars film that's different and new and like totally ri- ripping up the rule book. It is basically a remake of The Empire Strikes Back. Mm. Like it really is really really close to. Well, it's film. sort of a, a hasty remake of Empire Strikes Back with a bit of Return of the Jedi in it, sort of yeah. in places. But I don't want to spoil it for Chris. Um, it's, it's, yeah. yeah, but it's, it's an odd. It is yeah. odd. It but is you, odd. You do get at the end of The Empire Strikes 
back, you get a shot from within a different ship looking out at the Millennium Falcon. And so I guess if they wanted to kind of do that callback, they had to find somewhere to go to look at the the ship that everyone's on. Yeah. I think they're on the Millennium Falcon at that point. And, I mean, at that point, everyone else is dispersed. So there's not really anywhere else for them to go. So that it made sense to go to that that little group of child characters. But, sure. Um, I wonder if that's a good segue to talk about sort of some of these issues off the screen as much as on it, and, and that both perhaps behind the camera, but also with fan culture as well, of the sort of triadimic, in that, you know, you end The Last Jedi on a, on a don't worry, Star Wars is still for little boys uh, kind of n- note. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember, uh, which just reminds me sort of, that's that tension it's working through, right? Disney is both trying to in- sell to an inclusive audience, but it also knows its core audience and it's, you know, or what it thinks its core audience is, which is probably the more... Uh, powerful sort of thing sticking all of this and I can remember a, a controversy at the time where um, Ray's character there was no a- Ray action figure was there yeah. uh, did you, I mean I, I can't quite remember the ins and outs of this but it seemed yeah, important in were, terms of the, the, this tension of, of you couldn't on get, and off the screen you couldn't get like a Ray toy yes um, and it, was, it was a fin toy and they were yeah. saying and a Poe toy yeah you couldn't get a Ray toy which I noticed they have addressed in the, the kind of merchandise that they were doing after uh, The Last Jedi. However, even then, and I mean, there wasn't really a big controversy about this, but when you looked at the kind of sets of figures that they were selling, there were two Imperial Guards in there who were like totally nameless, anonymous <laughs> characters, and yet no Leia. Right. So there's always, a, you know, there was allowed to be one woman. Yeah. Or maybe, well, I don't know if Rose was in there either. You've got to pick so, one. You've got to pick a woman yeah. and that's she. Yeah. yeah, so there's always, you know, there's, there's room for one woman, but that's that's your lot. Um, but the so something I've been looking into in the archive recently has been the the kind of marketing strategy of 20th Century Fox, who was the distributor of the original trilogy films mm-hmm. back in the 70s and 80s. And it's actually this kind of myth, really, that the films were constructed for a male audience yeah. and for boys. Because if you look at their... Their documentation. The studio were doing loads and loads of um, audience research, so they were putting out test trailers and test publicity, and like fifty percent of the people that they were asking were women, mm. and they were specifically going back and changing their strategy and changing what the films looked like and recutting the trailer in order to get women to go and see the film. Okay, yeah. Um, so it it's it's a process of erasure. I mean, it's how. Yeah. That's how history works. But yeah, the idea that women were not always, maybe not considered the most important sort of demographic, but they were always valued and the films were always constructed with women in mind. Mm. And that makes sense because otherwise that's like 50% of the population that you've just written off who would otherwise come to sure, buy tickets. of course. So actually part of the myth of Star Wars is this, is the myth of how it, how it, how it needs to be sold, which is yep. sort of, I don't know who peddled it first, the... I mean, you oh, yeah. do get you get Lucasfilm executives and Lucasfilm kind of spokespeople, and I think George Lucas even plays into it by saying, you know, it was for twelve-year-old boys. But actually, most of the stuff I found is people saying it's for children, not specifying gender. Right. And you know, it's probably like a couple of clumsy comments here and there from a couple of people that have been circulated in the press. But really, the idea, you know, this kind of very, very toxic narrative that has circulated within Star Wars fandom in recent years, that it was for boys and for men, and women have only just come to it. I mean, it's just, 
Yeah. Um, yeah, to sort of cite a line from The Last Jedi in a very geeky way. It's all there in the ancient texts. Like, it's, <laughs> it's all in the archive. Like, that was, yeah. never, that was never the case. So is that narrative, do you think, developed out of a community's desire to keep certain members out? Um, yeah, I think it's about gatekeeping. Mm. Very much about gatekeeping. In a sort of, I mean, I, I, Chris and I did a, did a few sort of conventions over the last 12 months and there's a little you know a little bit of that going on with with doctor who fandom right with with the new casting and jodie whittaker this idea that um they're objecting to the idea that there's now a female doctor who because doctor who was always so male when like that's just sort of a, where, where that comes from is demonstrably not in the text right yeah. i mean they're all male but there's not really it's, the maleness of the figure doesn't seem to be a particularly big issue right yeah. um, okay interesting and i think but it also I think it comes from gatekeeping, but it's also just how we're taught to think about film and history mm. and the canon. Yeah. And God, like, every, you know, if I have to read one more academic text that like talks about George Lucas as if he's an auteur, drives me mad. It makes me want to pull my hair out. Like, it's yeah. just it's so frustrating. And there's a a really kind of masculine kind of way of conceiving of these films and their production and the industry. And it erases women and people of colour, like, at every step. But, I mean, it is how we are... It's how we're taught to construct film canon, and it's how we're taught to do history. So, in some ways, it kind of... It's frustrating that this happens within the fandom, but it's also not really that surprising. No, sure. It's, it's like a bigger... You know, the problem is not just Star Wars fandom. It's a much, much wider problem. And, you know, if you... Academics are doing it. So, of course, people, like, you know anyone outside of the academy is going to do it too. Yeah. I think it's a yeah, really widespread problem. But to sort of get theoretical and conceptual about it, I guess there's an interesting sort of problem in fantasy that I've not really thought about before, in that fantasy, mm. because, it, because the whole point of fantasy is it's a departure from reality, it's often seen as quite a subversive, or a potentially subversive mm. sort of impulse, because I think um, a sort of Marxist psychoanalytic theorist, Rosemary Jackson, talks about this the sort of literature of subversion, because by its very nature it pushes against... Hegemony and it pushes against normality because it because it has to. But at the same time, fantasy is associated with a subjective act, so it belongs to someone. Um, it's not something that can be objective and belong to everyone. It has to belong to someone. So the issue becomes who gets to own it, who yeah. gets to own the fantasy, because it's it's more uncomfortable to think that we can all have different fantasies in relation to one thing. Yeah, and I think George Lucas has been incredibly canny about maintaining ownership if not actual authorship sure um but that gets know, that gets me thinking about your recur because i was thinking about indus in the industrial side of this recursive looping pattern and this idea that um the films have been uh, and and we've talked about it like retrospectively tweaked i.e gone back and and stuff been added to and i actually when i watched i can't remember which one i watched where at the end, one of the original prequels, one of the original, sorry, one of the original Star Wars movies uh, that had Anakin Skywalker in it, and it was Hayden Christensen. And I wasn't expecting that. And I thought, oh, this has been a... Nobody this... was expecting no, that. No, no. <laughs> sort of no, like... no one wanted it. No, no. one expected it. And then it. when we, ro- we watch it, we're still not expecting it, but it happens. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, it's, but there's something kind of, quite, again, quite looping about that, where we just keep going back and... and and the technology or the visual effects, because the visual effects in this movie, I, 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 they feel a lot more practical, even though they're not, but they feel dusty and dirty and grimy in a way that the prequel um, films didn't. Um, and you have moments, you know, they're mostly battles and monsters, and you have a moment of interactivity where the map is being exploded out of, of um, 
BBA and you, mm-hmm. you have the missing part and everything like that. So characters are walking through the visual effects. Um, but it feels, you know, it feel, these feel like different movies. But visual effects is interesting because, yeah, it seems like they're going back and just... George Lucas, in terms of that ownership that you're talking about, he's he keeps going back and reauthoring these texts and adding in yeah. bits. And, and there's something quite repetitive and, and cyclical about that side of things yeah. as well. I mean, why, the weird thing for me is I'm like, why has no one done that to the prequels? Because they look terrible yeah. now. And actually, if any films in that... They need and regrading that or something. could benefit from a kind of digital reauthoring. It's, yeah. It's the prequels. Um, but his but control, yeah, I think, is interesting. It just yeah. reminded me of his control over... Because obviously he's not... Um, he's not the the in, involved in these films in the in these new films in the same way, mm. um, and yet they still feel very Star Warsy, which is I suppose great, and there's part of the the, the cohesiveness of the world. Um, but yeah, that point about authorship versus you know his status as an auteur, authorship, but then ownership. That's something else that yeah, feels something it else feels entirely. Like, I think those are kind of different things, and he clearly has ownership. Yeah. But I'm not always convinced that he has authorship. And I think that that's a, a really a kind of myth that has been peddled around these films and it's elevated him and it's contributed to this idea of gatekeeping mm-hmm. and what's canon and what isn't. Mm. Um, you know, again, like if you go back to archival materials, which there's not, I mean, given how big the franchise is, there's not a huge amount of publicly accessible archival material out there. And, you know, when I was looking at the, the 20th Century Fox stuff, I don't know precisely when it ended up in the Academy Library, but I was like, I, d- I don't feel like I've ever read any scholarship that uses this material before. In fact, I don't think I've ever read any scholarship that uses that material. And that, yeah, it is, there it is sitting yeah. in a publicly accessible archive. Mm. What Like, that's that's kind of weird to me, but I think it's because we're so used to the stories that Lucasfilm has told about itself mm. that people aren't looking to sort of change that narrative but yeah if you i mean even i was looking at um like concept drawings and um continuity artwork and stuff like that at the british film institute the other week and i mean even in that you're kind of looking and seeing well so much of this work was being done by you know so much of the design work so much of the Mm. the innovation you know, big decisions that were getting made about, you know, the design of In the Empire Strikes Back, um, the the kind of pod, I suppose, for want of a better word, like Darth Vader's pod, where you kind of see it, like, open up and he's sort of revealed in it. I think you see his hel- helmet coming down. Oh, yeah. Almost okay. like a kind of, I suppose it's meant to be like some kind of respiratory chamber. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. You know, that, was, that was all being designed kind of by set designers, like, on the fly like loads of that film because that production was quite sort of troubled in terms of the amount of money it cost and things kept going wrong and it kept overrunning but stuff was just being kind of designed and created as they were going along Mm. on set and Lucas wasn't even there he was in the US so he was kind of just signing off on things from the other side of the Atlantic so I don't think that you know film is all I I don't like the idea of the auteur anyway it frustrates me because film is always collaborative Mm. Yeah, and it's and it's again back to male coding all that sort of yeah. stuff, right? It's 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 you know, yeah, sure. Um, so there's there's that issue, isn't there? Yeah. Right, yeah. And the other, so one of the the kind of things that's become really interesting to me, writing specifically about the Empire Strikes Back, is because of this constant rewriting of the original texts, and who gets to own that and have authorship of it. 
I'm pretty sure because that's the film that now everyone everyone says it's their favourite Star Wars film. But again, when you go back to sort of stuff in the archive and look at the daily press and the criticism around the time the film came out, it had a really, really similar reception to The Last Jedi. And it was really divisive. Kind of the inverse in that audiences seemed to, to like it and critics didn't. But at some point that changes and it mm. becomes everyone's favourite and critics say it's their favourite. And I think that that happens in around 1994 when Lucas does the, the first kind of digital rewriting of the films and puts them out on VHS. And, and actually when you think about it, it's kind of obvious. The, the first film and the third film he makes really substantial changes to. So the first film has the uh, Han shot first controversy. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, Where sure, sure. he changes it so that it's Greedo that shoots first. And the third one has that awful, awful music sequence in uh, Jabba's Palace, where it has a kind of extended yes. musical sequence. The Empire Strikes Back, literally all they change is, you know, they kind of clean up some of the, the kind of black lines where they've done blue screen. And that's it. So I think it's because it's like the most authentic film at the point where they've been mm. remastered. And, that, and so it's the one that's most familiar to people and it's got the kind of easiest sort of sense of nostalgia and it feels like the most truthful and that's the moment when it becomes everyone's favourite film. Interesting. But, but so it's I also, think it's like a real rejection yeah. of Lucas doing the rewriting and actually like, it's almost like a fan rejection of, well, actually you can't just do whatever you want to these films. In the same way that there's now like a kind of backlash against... Um, J.K. Rowling for the constant kind of retconning and rewriting of the Harry Potter franchise. Oh, through like tweets and things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Which sure. is kind of constantly updating it and, and saying, well, actually, you know, you almost feel like if she could go back, she would have done something similar to Lucas and she would have like rewritten the books and put them out again. But people get seem to get fed up with it. And it's actually like, no, these are these are out and they're ours now. Yeah. Presumably so, it was designed... Given that you said it was 1994, which is the same year that he starts writing supposedly the prequels based on whatever information he wants to create about these characters, best ones. it's obviously part of a calculated, we'll be retouching these and then there'll be. So, so at 1994, he's both looking back and looking forward. He's retconning, as you say, and redoing old movies and creating a sort of narrative that fits with what you're saying, uh, exclusionary, include that sort of thing. Uh, but it's also looking forward and hopefully, well, in his case, uh, creating anticipation for an upcoming. So there's something interesting, you know, the, the, we, the, which I think speaks to this industrial history, this, this we can look at Star Wars as visual effects movies, but that's not the only context we might want to think about other things. So there's, I, f- I find that really interesting to place, and I know, Alex, you're interested in Disney's, relationship to its own history and you know disney feature animation and kind of a cultural history and what we say about the the studio the often comes from what the studio says about itself and how it defines mm. itself as. Or, or that third space which i think becca's talking about which is the sort of the myths we've created in yeah. culture that are partially from studio but partially just from our own lip service right yeah, yeah. what things have meant to us at any one moment yeah. um it sounds like there wasn't well it sounds like there wasn't much attempt to make empire the the favourite film, but by a series of nebulous yeah. factors, that's what happens. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on in, in, in Disney scholarship and in Disney yeah. uh, fan lore. Well, um, and, and, but part of that retconning is I've just made me think in terms of effects um, is a bit that I mentioned when Ray, yeah, Ray picks up the, the, the lightsaber and she has that extended flashback that has, you know, bits of audio and footage yeah. cut in together and that's like a, uh, what's the word, like a 
uh, metaphor, but uh, you know that's what the whole the whole movies do. All of these movies take little bits and get you to re-record that little bit of dialogue or cut cut you and McGregor's version of a line with Alec Guinness's and and all this sort of tinkering seems an interesting you know it does a lot that sequence it re- places her in relationship to the narrative and her and relationship to to the force it it you know it's a moment of she's picking up a an object like a thing that's been laying dormant it's yeah. just been and it's you know it's Luke's lightsaber yeah, so yeah. it's got all of that kind of history yeah. weight and it's been yeah. kept and stored and you think why is it why is it there and why is it Maz Kanata that has it yes and Oh, we, we haven't talked about Maz. No, I was thinking about you know, I was thinking about that and casting and and yeah. Well, first of all, isn't it, isn't the sequence because that's one of the best um you know the, the explosion. I was going to say explosion. It's one of the best explosion sequences. Um, but the sort of set piece, the assault on her on her base. Um, but what I liked about it was when the characters arrive. Don't look, just don't look at everything. And they open the door, and there's all these different types of, and it's you know supposed to be presumably a callback to the original kind of bar scene where you have yeah, all the these different, scene, yeah, yeah, these different variations of. But at the same time, she's got a whiff of Yoda about her, no. Yeah, um, sort of that role, the yeah. wise, slightly cryptic. She's been around you, for a while. Well, she also, knows. just sort of the, the you know the, the wise, but also you know small in stature and all this kind of thing dynamic going on. Um, yeah, I don't know what Maz is, but it's, but but it's, it's fun. It's, it, it is about the okay. So the remake point, I think that you that you made. It, it, it's not that. It's about how archetypes are then reallocated or split up or fractured and, and reallocated to different characters. And then where we, so it's 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 not a straight remake. It's not a, you know it's generic is what you said at the start. It's formulaic. But it's what's interesting is where the the different parts. Who do they belong to? And what roles are being assumed by who, as you say, whether that's through costume, whether that's through uh, dialogue, that's a callback. So, all the, and again, that feeds into everything you, the, the, that you said about kind of looping and recursive. But there's also this, it's one of the, that character is one of the moments where it's like Star Wars, yet again, letting itself down in terms of diversity, because it has, for all that Finn's there, it has a massive problem with black women. Mm. And, you know, we, we start to get like some attention to women of colour with Rose in the next film. But actually, you know, you've got Lupita Nyong'o who's being kind of digitally erased yeah. from mm. the film and appearing only as a, a kind of CGI character, which is not great in a no. franchise that has no black women in it. Yeah. Up to that point. So there's a kind of a a problem there with her sort of being present and yet not present in the film. Yeah, which is an issue with technology as, you yeah, know, digital visual effects. Yeah, but I mean, I guess effects. in some ways, that actually, that's almost a, an unfortunate sort of reference point as well to, to Darth Vader, who is a kind of, is James L. Jones and is a black voice, but the erasure of the black body, but then a white person. Yeah. Is it David Prose? David Prose, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you've got a white body, but within a black kind of demonic looking costume and a black voice. But so there's like so many layers yeah. of presence and erasure. And I want yeah, I guess there's actually a kind of continuity between Vader and, and Maz in some ways. Yeah. Perhaps I've not thought about it that much. Well yeah, to, I've not thought about any of this. This is all gonna be kind of, you know, off the cuff thoughts. But then there's also uh, Cap- uh Captain Phasma, who is um Gwendolyn Christie, who is again sort of oddly inert and erased mm. in the movies you know it's quite a reasonably big tv star to cast to do two scenes yeah. under a under a you know uh a, a 
stormtrooper helmet and things mm. like that, which seems to have a certain echo to Darth Vader, but not in a particularly meaningful way. Yep. And then you've got, then I guess you've also to throw in the issue of performance. Perhaps we haven't really got time to unpick this at all. But if if Maz is a sort of echo of Yoda, you've got the performance of Frank Oz in that movie, who is sort of on set performing the puppet character, yeah. but very much in discourses that I've encountered, owns um, that character, owns the artistry of it, whilst can the same be said of Lupita Nyong'o in this sort of digital character? I feel instinctively probably not, no. but then mm. I suspect there's a lot of animation performance theory that suggests that you you know there's there's a lot of willingness to give Andy Circus yeah. a similar yeah. level of agency and mm. and creative creativity to performances mm. that he might make in movies like that. Yeah. But Lupita Nyong'o does not get that kind of um, yeah. And I don't yeah. know. I'm not. I actually don't know in the making of the film how present and on set she was, mm. and whether or not it's. I, I mean, I genuinely don't know. I don't know if it's her who they've modelled mm. the the performance yeah. on because it seems like in terms of the size dynamics of the cast it probably isn't yeah um having been in a room with her she's a lot taller than that yeah um <laughs> whereas in solo where they've got phoebe waller bridge as l3 you know she was performing that role and she had a kind of l3 costume mm. and the kind of green sort of leotard on and then they've just mapped her and then they've kind of filled in gaps so she's actually yeah. really physically present in the film. So the presence of the body during filmmaking is important. Uh, this is a question I feel like I know the answer to, but I thought I'd say it anyway. I mean, I guess, I mean, I think in terms of the sort of gender and race yeah. politics, it's really important. Yeah. And like sort of the, inha- like who gets to inhabit the set mm-hmm. and who's materially present. But, but, uh, but I mean, whether like in a broader philosophical context, No, 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 sure. but no, in that yeah. context, that, in that, that's context, sort of why I asked the question. Yeah. In that context, it's really important, isn't yeah. it? Because otherwise it's, um, yeah, it's a question of, 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 of again, the, the story off screen as well as the story on screen. But, but actually, on that, you know, the film is much more, <laughs> discourses around the film are much more excited to talk about Daniel Craig's cameos as a stormtrooper. Yeah. Like, we're talking about erasure and the, these sorts of, like, you know, who cameos as a stormtrooper, who's inside the... So, so well, we, don't, we don't ask that of, you know, char- women of colour who are voicing yeah. characters. And the paradox of that is that his character is about as no has about as many lines about as noticeable as Gwendolyn Christie's character yeah. and yet she's named on the poster as being in this movie and he is it's fun to mention him being in it right Un- untangle that yeah uh, no it's just it's, <laughs> it's, it's, the que- it's the questions we ask about the agent you know the agency of the of digital bodies yeah, like it's, yeah. and, and this thing with with actors who are allowed to cameo and that's part of the pleasure of working out whether the royal family really were stormtroopers mm. and on set and present on that day. Um, we don't ask the same question of actors who are being erased by, you know, maybe we should, but we are. We should be asking questions about who's being erased by certain kind of industry practices and technologies and who's who's contributing what to the performance. And crucially then, why all this matters, the stakes oh, of that. I also know all those anecdotes we hear of people being in it, sneaking in and being a stormtrooper, though, they're all white men. Unless, unless, unless I can think of a, yeah. unless there's a counter example. Which is kind of funny because they're actually within the story world of Star Wars really unlikely to be white men. Mm. Right. Because the... the and the only Stormtrooper we've seen is John Boyega. Yeah, yeah. And the original Stormtroopers are meant to be the, the kind oh. of remnant of the, the clone army, mm-hmm. which is, is based is, on mm. a man of colour. And then by the time we get to the First Order... I think we're, they're meant to be 
basically like child, you know, kids who have been turned into yeah. like child soldiers and trained into, and I mean like based on the, the kind of racial dynamics of that kind of fascist totalitarian yeah. movement, all of the people in charge are white. They're not going and stealing white kids and turning them into, yeah. into stormtroopers. Not within the kind of logic of no, the sure. way yeah, race yeah. is set up within the films. So actually I think it's more likely that the stormtroopers would all be of colour. Mm. And of course, yeah, that's what we see with Finn's character. Absolutely. But yeah, so the fact that actually on set, all of the stormtroopers are cameoed by... A well, they, you know, very kind of like privileged white men. Yeah, kind of... who are big Star Wars fans. Yeah, yeah. uh-huh, uh-huh. We could, we, we really could, we could. could keep going, but yeah, we've we got really there, there, are two, there are lots of Star Wars films to get through, and, and only so yeah, much and listener I, patience. Yeah, to and, test. I, and I need to, you know, I need time to watch them and rewatch them, and you know, go back and retcon them, and then watch the new version of the old films. So yeah. I need to and process some of the stuff we talked about today because there's lots to think about. Becca, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Um, what uh, this is. So actually, this is a disclaimer that will in no way help listeners because we've just got to the end of the podcast. This is go- this is recorded pre-advance. So two things. One thing that hasn't happened is we haven't all seen uh, the Rise of Skywalker. No, we haven't seen the so Rise that's of why we haven't been yeah. going on in the last about sure. how this means to the Rise I mean, of Skywalker. I've got, I've got theories about how that film's going to go. Yeah, I'm sure. What, do you want to offer like three, and I'll edit in the one that was correct. Okay. Okay. We'll and release yeah. three yeah. versions of the podcast <laughs> yeah. over okay. the next few right, years. So yeah. everyone, take a pause between each one. Well, we can to just react. yeah, well, you can like wreck on the podcast. Yeah. Right. Easy. Um, so my theory, because mm-hmm. so there's, there's been this like emergence of uh, Dark Ray, where she appears in this kind of dark side Sith. You know, she's got a black cloak okay. and she's got a red lightsaber that kind of reticulated. It looks like a bit like Darth Maul's lightsaber from yeah. the prequels. And you see her for about... There she is, looking at her. She's showing Googling. us a photo right yeah, now. We're losing so... all sense of discipline. Oh, this is wonderful. <laughs> yeah, okay, so what's happening there? So, for a start, there's loads and loads of um, kind of queer subtext to that, which has been really, really fascinating to me. Um, particularly because LGBT characters are... That's something we haven't talked about. Oh, God, yeah. None of them in the films, but look, actually quite a few of them in the the novels and the other paratexts. My theory with this... Well, I've got two theories. Mm. One is it will be some kind of fantasy sequence. Mm. So kind of like we've seen in The Force Awakens where she picks up a lightsaber and it transports her to like this really kind of dark space. Mm. Sure. Or my other theory is that um, it will be... So in The Last Jedi, we see her go to the dark side, like really briefly, but she kind of gets sucked into a really dark place and then she's able to pull herself away from it. And I wonder if, you know, it's called The Rise of Skywalker. I hope this isn't the case because it will be upsetting in terms of its politics. But I wonder if we might see Rey deliberately cross to the dark side to save Kylo and to help with his metaphorical rise back up to the light side. So if she's got some kind of, she's so powerful with the force and so good that she's able to, to kind of go rogue and go dark, in order to save him. Right. That's my that's my theory. With a bit of Palpatine thrown in. A bit of Palpatine thrown in. Sure. I did see someone. I think actually a more likely theory that I saw someone come up with online was that um, I wish I could credit it, but too many people talking about Star Wars online mm-hmm. um, was that she probably has a twin. Oh. Because it's all about twins. And in the beginning of that reel, they do show the twin sons on Tatooine. Okay. And then at the end, we see Dark Ray. So, I mean, that I, I actually think that's quite a feasible yeah. fan theory. Okay. Well, considering well, there's multiple versions of the same Star Wars movie, yeah. so yeah. that would fit. Yeah. 
industrially, if not narratively. Or, or the film starts with um, Luke getting out of the shower and it was all a dream. <laughs> um, yeah. um, and then we got the song by Adele and then we're off. Yeah. And then we're um, off. Right, well, I hope you enjoyed five minutes of discussion <laughs> yeah. of a movie you've already seen um, and what might happen in it. Um, let's hope that was correct because that sounds fun. Um, in the meantime, yes. um, Becca, where can people find you on uh, social media? Uh, I mean, only find me on social media if you're not going to send me hate mail for being a woman talking about Star Wars. But, that, seems, um, that seems fair. Yes, that, um, I think that's a, I think that's okay. a fair request. Yeah. Uh, so I'm on Twitter as uh, at Becca E. Harrison. Um, and that's it. That's kind of my... Wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank okay. you very much for... I mean, I, I love the Star Wars movies more than I did when I started. And I only started watching them 10 days ago. So this okay. has been a really um, exciting. And, and I'm really excited now for the... I haven't, I haven't had that excitement of watching this, you know, the Star Wars movies as and when they come out. So now I'm going to watch them, uh, rush and watch yeah. the Last Jedi, so I can get it in time for the new one. For the new one, they yeah. Have a Christmas fantasy animation Christmas outing. Yes. Um, in the meantime, you can find us at Fantasy Animation, Fantasy-Animation.org, or on Twitter, Fan Anim Research, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research, as well as on Facebook and probably on something else if we've got our acting together. Yeah. But Try, try your Reddit if you've wakened our forces we will find you need to get on TikTok apparently right that's, okay. where, that's where all the kids are now TikTok. right okay, okay. Well, when, well when this comes out if that's ceased, ceased to exist that's dated the podcast it was really cool <laughs> apparently you know. we're now a Kesha song yeah. um, <laughs> so, so that's good um, but until then uh, we'll, we'll, we'll what journey to a galaxy far far away we will. we'll see you next time bye